interesting, getting back to this idea of risky play that you just mentioned, um, what's cool at our school is also we have a school leadership that's really open to it. And so like you'll go out to our recess, which they get three recesses a day, which is also really awesome. But you'll see students out in the grassy area, uh, rough and tumble playing like they are pushing each other, they're wrestling. And we allow that. And we, we don't encourage it. We're not like saying like, yeah, go push that kid down. But we encourage it from the sense of like, yes, we want this to be happening because we see the benefits of it from a physical perspective, but then also from a social emotional perspective, knowing that a lot of our students, when you think of their, um, this ACEs score, adverse childhood experiences, they have these high ACEs scores because they've experienced a lot of things. A lot of children shouldn't have to experience. And, um, from a social emotional perspective, like that rough and tumble play, that physical play is, um, is something that not only is really beneficial for them, but they seek. And it's a way of expression. It's a way of communication that, um, especially for like English language learners, it's a, you know, play is a language that every child understands and rough and tumble play, especially. And I think probably the students we've seen the most benefit from just anecdotally is some of our kindergartners because like they don't have the social emotional language skills to express themselves. But when it comes to being able to express themselves to rough and tumble play, um, we're seeing just really awesome benefits of that um, self-regulation. And I don't know, it's really cool from a social emotional perspective to, to see how risky play plays itself out in all children, but especially in some of those younger children. Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and enlightening conversations around movement practice and how you can become the most heroic version of yourself through pursuing movement that's relevant to your nature. This is a podcast that's going to feature some of the top movers in the world, some of the most amazing movement thinkers, and people from fields that are related to movement as far afield as evolutionary theory, strength and conditioning, and everything in between. So if you're interested in movement, Please stick around, and if you like our work and want to support it, please consider supporting us on Patreon because this podcast is completely listener-supported. We don't want to take any advertising. We don't want to interrupt your experience of watching the show. So what really helps us get the best thinkers on, have the time to put these together, have the best quality for you guys as far as audio and video is your support. So please consider supporting us and enjoy the rest of the show. Hey guys, so this week on the Evolve Movement Play podcast, our guest is Peter Verdon. Peter's uh, position is described as a movement engineer um, at Future Public Schools. He is also one of the hosts of the Other Literacies podcast. And I reached out to him to have a conversation because I love the way that he's incorporating natural movement, parkour, um, and the constraints-led approach and ecological dynamics into physical education for children and really popularizing this as an approach. So if you're interested in how we apply these ideas and work with kids and how this can be something that the school system can take up, Peter Verdon's really an interesting guy and you know I think an amazing advocate for this. And this is something I truly believe in that we can do way better with our physical education system. So I was really excited to talk to him and kind of get some of his ideas behind how he's approaching these things, how he's building his drills, you know, how we're looking at all these different components of what we're trying to achieve with educating students, whether they're children or adults. So 
enjoy. Without any further ado, Peter Verdon. Peter, welcome to the uh, Evolve and Play podcast. It's great to have you. It's great to be here. Honored to be here. Um, love having these conversations. So I'm excited. Cool. So I ran into your work on Twitter and I just love the way that you are, um, you know, your, your primary work is, is uh, in physical education or um, physical literacy, I suppose you might call it. Mm-hmm. And you put up videos on your Twitter feed all the time of you using a very constraint-led approach, a very playful approach to develop skills with kids. And the kids always look like they're having an amazing time. And I always think that the ideas that you're exploring are really cool. So I reached out to you to have a conversation. I started looking into your work and I realized you actually have your own podcast yeah, called the Other Literacies Podcast. And I really liked that idea of other literacies. And it's, it's something that's very resonant with some of the ideas of my own work. So I first want to just ask you, what are the other literacies? You know, what does that mean? Yeah. So um, the other literacies in the most uh, direct uh, answer to your question, I guess, is physical literacy, environmental literacy, and then this idea of social emotional learning is kind of the catchphrase or social emotional literacy. Um, but it was really formed from me and a couple of my buddies um, just wanting to get back to shooting the shit around the table and exploring what education could be in its most ideal form uh, compared to where it has kind of diverged now in this you know hyper a structured testing environment. Um, and yeah, so the other literacies is just us kind of exploring some of these other literacies and thinking about what education could be and what it should be for kids to, to be most prepared for a successful future. Cool. So is that a, is that an, uh, is that a, a phrase that you came up with or is that something you're pulling out of other literature? No, it's honestly something we came up with. We each kind of had our literacy of focus and we were like, what, what do we call this? And physical literacy is kind of more of a, a, a known phrase, I would say. And social emotional learning is a, is a known phrase. But we're like, these are just these other literacies that kind of get the leftovers in a lot of ways when it comes to education. So we thought, I don't know, that was just a good catch all term for what we wanted to explore. That's, that's really cool. I was literally, I just wrote an article I published on our website about uh, rough and tumble play. And I talked about the idea that we are play literate in our culture. And um, I, I had this, this kind of realization or this idea of a, of, of a literacy as a way of thinking about this. Um, a few years ago, I actually had uh, a really intense overtraining, over, overreaching incident where I, uh, I was traveling a ton, um, teaching, and then just all these different stresses kind of hit me and I ended up having a little bit of a panic attack. Wasn't able to, to do the normal training that I did. I started having like, you know, panic symptoms when I was like six or seven feet up in a tree when I was used to going a hundred feet up real easily. So I, I was trying to recover from that and I was walking through the woods every day. I made that my practice, just like forget about the skill work and just walk through the woods every day. And then I would do like Wim Hof breathing and, and swimming and, and all this stuff. But as I was walking through the woods every day and without the, you know, the access to kind of some of the physical skills that I would normally explore, I just started really paying attention to the environment. And I've had quite a few students from the Wilderness Awareness School here in Washington. And I started really seeing the environment and asking a lot of questions about, you know, what lives here? right? Like what's the interaction between these different species? Like we're in the middle of uh, the park that's next to our house is kind of at the end of the, 
succession phase where the deciduous trees are starting to die off and the conifers are taking over. So we're, we have all these really old alders um, and maples, but they're starting to crash. Like every winter when we go down there, we hear crashing trees. Um, and you can see the young conifers coming up. And so I started like thinking about this idea that, that when most people walk through the woods, they see a wall of green, right? And there's little that differentiates it. They don't know that this is an alder tree and this is a maple tree and this is a cedar tree. Um, and then they don't know what that means. Like what kind of wood can you get out of those or what kind of, you know, what kind of stuff does it offer you? And I was thinking that, um, like for a hunter forager walking through the woods is like reading a book. Like the book has all of this information that just, it affords the, the person observing it, right? Mm -hmm. Once you're literate in reading, you are afforded this immense potential for information that's in your environment. Um, and yet kind of the most basic thing to read our environment, most of us are completely illiterate in. It's as if we never learned to read because we don't, we can't track. We don't know the plants. We don't know the animals. We don't know, we don't know hardly anything about this. And all of that was the most, the most relevant environment information for us um, through most of our evolution. So that's the first time that I, I started using that term of literacy and using this analogy of being able to read as, as having this kind of connection to, um, do you have competencies and how those competencies or those, that perspective affords you all these opportunities in your environment. So that was really interesting to see that you guys were adopting that same, that same idea. Yeah. And it's been a lot of fun to adopt that same idea and see how that changes engagement and the joy of students. Um, when you start to integrate play in really intentional ways. So it, maybe it's not a true definition of play, but um, it's been my biggest aha moment by far in, in my career so far. Um, can you go a little bit more into it? What, what was the big aha moment? Yeah. Um, well, first, when you say like uh, we're a play illiterate society, I think that's an interesting statement because from what I'm seeing and the population that I work with, I actually would say is pretty play literate in the sense that they do go outside. They do, you know, explore the woods. They do jump off of stuff and climb stuff. And I, I, it made me realize that play illiteracy is really um, in a lot of ways, a, a privilege of, you know, in, in a lot of ways, white privilege um, because those that have the, the, the means and income to, um, do a lot of stuff that's around technology and inside are the ones that are often play illiterate. And that's not the student population that I work with. So I always thought the same thing, like our kids are inside, they're not literate when it comes to these, this unstructured free play, but that's not necessarily the case I would say all around. And especially with this um, more diverse, lower socioeconomic population of students that I work with long story short. Which, yeah, it's, that was a little bit of a bird walk, but it's kind of an interesting tangent. Um, yeah, uh, it's maybe not one of the central themes here we'll go into, but uh, I actually was listening to the podcast where you're talking about um, physical literacy, I think, and you guys were, were talking about it kind of in the opposite way. You were saying that, like, just as kids who have less opportunity have less, less access to, say, books, they also have less access to play. And I was thinking, I think it's the opposite. I think that the most, the most play deprived are actually um let's say urban and suburban yeah. people 
Like that's the people who are, who are really, um, really play deprived. And I think that you're seeing all sorts of negative impacts. You know, this is the, the people who for better or worse are going to occupy a lot of positions of power in our society. And if they, uh, if they are missing this huge developmental nutrient, um, I think it's setting them up for, for massive failures. I think what you're, you're thinking too is our students are really deprived when it comes to like manipulative skills because they don't have access to a lot of the sports opportunities that the more privileged do. So that's also really interesting to see is the, um, like when you pull out the basketballs, how, you know, movement completely changes from these students who can vault and, you know, do front tucks off of a mini trampoline over something, but cannot dribble a basketball. It's like really, really fascinating. That is interesting. But getting back to your question, sorry for that, that tangent. Um, you know, I, I came from this, this opportunity where I was developing curriculum and training physical educators all over the country over, you know, probably over the course of the last three and a half years, trained a few hundred different physical educators. And the one thing that always seemed like the missing piece was we were doing a lot of cool things around skill acquisition and teaching skill, but it was this piece of engagement. And uh, 19 months ago, my world was turned upside down when we had our first child and um, seeing her outside and exploring and also just preparing for that um, life-changing moment of what we want for her. And one of those things was thinking back to my childhood and this outdoor play and this idea of natural um, play or natural movement that I know you're familiar with and listeners are probably familiar with. And that was a big piece of what I wanted for her. And, and as she grew, she's 19 months old, as she grew up outside playing, seeing her level of engagement in that um, was, was really fascinating and digging into some of your stuff, some of the movement net stuff, some of these other key contributors in natural movement, um, out in parkour, in gymnastics, and thinking about um, what I wanted moving into this new role as a, we call it a movement engineer at our school, um, and shaping what this program of physical education is going to look like. I knew that um, play needed to be in, integrated in in some way, shape, or form, and I think I was still fuzzy on what that looked like, and then so I just kind of started tinkering with it. And as we went outside and we have this, I'm at the school right now, we have this amazing river right next that borders the school and a forest that borders the river. As we went out there to work on the same skills that I otherwise would have programmed inside the gym, I just saw this real big shift in engagement. And that engagement level led to a lot more joy. It led to also a lot more um, skill acquisition. And I think going back to your question about what was, you know, a little deeper into that aha, that was that like, wow, this could be so much more than walking across a balance beam in a gym to teach dynamic balance. Like walking across a downed tree over a creek is probably a more nutrient dense movement opportunity, but also it's a whole lot more engaging and a lot more joyful. Um, And it's been really cool to see that shift in students' mindsets as a result. Yeah, sorry, there's lots of things I'm excited to dig into there. I wanted to, to dig into the idea of, of movement nourishment and uh, the, the connection between the, the constraint um, in some sense, or the, you know, like we can look at this from what's the information, right? Like how much information is there in that environment 
when they're in the gym or how much novel information is there in that environment in the gym on a balance beam versus walking across uh, 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 a tree, uh, a fallen tree over a creek. You know, so you have the sound of the water, you have the risk of getting in the water. You have all of the, the surrounding environment. Um, you have the fact that the, the tree itself is gonna have a, a certain kind of dip and move and sway to it. You have maybe some little, uh, some little limbs sticking up here and there. Like all that is, is information. And then also, um, I think all that information, it, it tends to optimize that like skill to challenge ratio that you know, we know taps into flow. And we know that rich environments, environments that have lots of information that are really um, rich in, in, um, in things that can call our attention, tend to be also major triggers of the flow state. So, so it seems to me that there's a, this really deep connection between how you could think of the nourishments from a sort of a functional standpoint and how they actually play out in a motivational standpoint. Mm -hmm. I was just curious if you... Um, if you noticed that, if you could, you know, what your, your take on that was. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And, and to use that like nourishment analogy, Katie Bowman uses it in her book, move your DNA of like a movement diet in a lot of ways, like we're trying to replicate in the gym, what's going to happen in the outdoor environment, but we're not able to replicate a lot of what you're mentioning. I think in a lot of ways that analogy holds true to like school lunches you know, the school lunch program, we're trying to give them the most nutrient dense meals as possible. But in a lot of ways, like we're, they're missing a lot of key nutrients because of, um, we're trying to do it in a mass production way. We're trying to do it in a way that's most cost effective. We're trying to do it in a way that's most efficient. And that's a lot of what we're trying to do in the gym. And it just takes away a lot of those nutrients that um, we're able to experience outside. Um, but getting back into like the joy aspect and the engagement, when you think of the constraints led approach, you have the student, the environment and the task, like you mentioned, the student breaks out into this, um, functional versus more structural, um, kind of dichotomy and that functional, one of the key pieces is motivation. And I mean, every, I, I, I don't think a day has gone by where a student hasn't asked me if we are going outside for class and for whatever reason, and we, we know, I mean, we know the reason, but there is just this motivating factor of being outside in a natural environment. And for me also, like I leave the workday a lot less stressed. I leave a lot more with my bucket still filled. Um, cause the gym is more of this like sterile, um, loud environment. Um, that just doesn't seem like a place where we're supposed to be better yet, where it's going to really foster, this idea of movement acquisition, movement skill learning, it's just, it's tough. Um, so yeah, that's kind of my yeah. first reaction, knee-jerk reaction to what you just said. <laughs> I, I love Katie Bowman's book, uh, wonderful book, and, and I, I've really thought about that. And one way that I've started to think about these things is that natural movements, movements that, um, you know, the way that I think about a natural movement is that it is, uh, that it is, you know, it is more natural to the degree the degree to which it replicates the things that we saw repeatedly throughout our evolution. It's not a binary where there's unnatural on one side and natural on the other side. It's a spectrum. And you can say that, you know, tree climbing, for instance, is deeply innate for human beings as primates. 
Throwing, um, also very important evolutionarily, quite recent for us. It's probably harder on us developmentally, harder on the shoulder to stay healthy with throwing as a really primary thing. Still really important. I mean, obviously it's part of all of our sports is a huge aspect of who we are. Um, but it, you know, if on like a developmental hierarchy, the climbing actually precedes the, the, mm-hmm. the throwing for me. So that's, that's kind of the way that I think about natural. Um, but then with natural versus, you know, let's say artificial is the opposite of it. Um, I think natural movements are like whole foods, right? And exercises are like um, supplements, right? Mm-hmm. When there's a deficiency in the movement diet, you can fill things in with the exercises. Yeah. But if you're trying to fill in your, your, your diet bucket with only supplements, yeah, it's bad. <laughs> it's a bad way to do it. Not going to, not going to work. So, um, I, before we go further, I wanted to just mention, so you're based in Boise right now, correct? Yep. Uh, technically right where I'm at now is in garden city, which is adjacent to Boise, but I live in, in the Boise city limits. Okay, cool. So you're in Boise and, um, so it's interesting, you know, we have kind of different experiences cause I'm, I'm based in Seattle, right. And I, I live in a fairly affluent community, a lot of tech families. And I would say that, um, access to outdoor time and unstructured playtime in the community that I live in, um, is extremely limited. It's becoming something that people are aware of, right? People are, you know, there's actually a, a, um, my wife's on a committee right now to develop an outdoor learning uh, space at uh, at our local elementary school. Um, but like, there's no kids playing in our neighborhood at all. You know, we have a park, a huge park right next door, and you'll never see unsupervised kids in that park ever, right? Mm-hmm. The kids are taken to the playground by their parents. They play at the playground um, and maybe within like 30 feet of the playground in the woods. But you'll never see a fort in those woods. You'll never see, you know, any evidence that children in all of these residential neighborhoods that are right around here are engaging in play in that park, which is, I mean, it's really astonishing what that says about our culture. Yeah. Like think about having a a giant patch of woods surrounded by suburban housing and no evidence that there are children there. Yeah, that's troubling. Yeah, so I think we're having, you know, there's a different experience. You know, when I say that we're, we're play illiterate, I think that that's true in general as a culture, but it's yeah, more, I agree. more true in, um, in, uh, in the highly urban, and uh, actually I think in the more affluent uh, areas. Yeah. More privileged areas for sure. I totally agree. So anyways, I just wanted to go back and, and, and touch base on that. So you... Um, you're originally from Virginia or yep, right outside the, the DC area in Alexandria, Virginia. So you grew up in that. Uh, I mean, that's probably a, uh, a relatively affluent. And yep. I am definitely the product of white privilege. Uh, my dad's an orthopedic surgeon, but I think I also was, um, very lucky to have parents who one were active and like valued being active. Um, two, I was, I would say I was on the probably one of the last generations where like outdoor free play was, was okay. And it wasn't like we were worried about, you know, all the bad things in the world. So I grew up right off the Potomac river with this big forest right behind my house and grew up playing, um, in the, in the Creek, 
I'd come home so muddy from, you know, tromping through that creek and, and, you know, rough and tumble play with my friends in the neighborhood, you know, kick the can, manhunt, all those different games we played growing up, climbing trees. Uh, I mean, I have such great memories of climbing the big magnolia tree in our front yard, all the way to the top, falling out of it several times. Uh, trying to make like makeshift harnesses out of my the ropes I took from my dad's workshops, yeah. so I had this really great opportunity of of a lot of unstructured free play, um, despite coming from that more privileged background. That's great. Um, so uh, yeah, I love magnolia trees. They're freaking amazing for climbing. Oh, they're great. Yeah. Uh, so then, as you've gotten into this uh, work in in physical education, you've moved through a number of different communities. Have you seen differences in play literacy and an openness to risky play in those different communities that you've worked with? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when, whenever you're working in a more affluent area, regardless, like you have a different parenting style and that risky play with helicopter parents is a lot more challenging um, because you, everything is viewed under a microscope. Um, and so, you know, in, in my previous work, I worked with a school that was right outside Salt Lake City, very affluent population, a very white population being in the Salt Lake City area. Um, and then I also worked with a school um, in Jefferson Parish, which is right out of New Orleans. And those were like polar opposites. And then I worked with another school in St. Cloud, Minnesota, which has like 50% Somalian refugees. Um, and so there's there was this huge contrast, both from a parenting perspective but then also from a cultural perspective of like, what is normal? Um, St. Cloud, you know, with Somalia refugees, the females, they aren't very active in a lot of ways and they aren't encouraged to be active. And so that's a whole other interesting barrier to, to overcome. But yeah, I mean, that when you go to the school in Harriman, Utah, they are much more, um, I'd say, fundamental sports skills fluent because they have the access to uh, more structured activities of sport. Whereas you come to this school in Garden City and a lot of our students don't have access to that, but they'll pull up, you know, flips off of a trampoline, like with their eyes closed. So it's really interesting to see these different um, movement cultures arise from just the environments that they're um, afforded because of, you know, their parents and their financial situations and their cultural situations. So aside from the physical skills, like, um, you know, those other literacies, we have the physical literacy. So, you know, you could say, uh, you know, having literacy in, in, in soccer and lacrosse and, and basketball, is that fundamentally any, uh, any better or worse than having literacy in flipping off trampolines and climbing or, or whatever it is that the, you know, the lower um, income community you're working with is literate in. But I'm curious how those might play out in like that environmental literacy and the something we haven't talked about a lot, but something I'm very interested in is that social, um, social emotional aspect of literacy. Mm, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Getting back to this idea of risky play that you just mentioned, um, what's cool at our school is also we have a school leadership that's really open to it. And so like you'll go out to our recess, which they get three recesses a day, which is also really awesome. And while our, our environmental landscape of where they do recess is at a city park right behind our school, and it's awesome to have that park, but it's just like a completely flat 
grassy area and then a you know your typical jungle gym type thing but you'll see students out in the grassy area uh rough and tumble playing like they are pushing each other they're wrestling and we allow that and we we don't encourage it we're not like saying like yeah go push that kid down but we encourage it from the sense of like yes we want this to be happening because we see the benefits of it from a physical perspective, but then also from a social emotional perspective, knowing that a lot of our students, when you think of their, um, this ACEs score, adverse childhood experiences, they have these high ACEs scores because they've experienced a lot of things. A lot of children shouldn't have to experience. And um, from a social emotional perspective, like that rough and tumble play, that physical play is, um, is something that not only is really beneficial for them, but they seek. And it's a way of expression. It's a way of communication that, um, especially for like English language learners, it's a, you know, play is a language that every child understands and rough and tumble play, especially. And I think probably the students we've seen the most benefit from just anecdotally is some of our kindergartners because like they don't have the social emotional language skills to express themselves but when it comes to being able to express themselves through rough and tumble play um, we're seeing just really awesome benefits of that um, self-regulation and i don't know it's really cool from a social emotional perspective to to see how risky play plays itself out in all children but especially in some of those younger children yeah i've been definitely resonating with my own story like that article i was telling you about um you know i uh, I grew up in an interesting little intersection between cultural trends because I grew up um, in a rural area which uh, has a lot of poverty in it. Um, and I was part of essentially the counterculture, like my parents were part of the hippie counterculture. Um, my mom came from, you know, more of an educated class, I suppose. Um, my dad, my dad also came from basically the kind of the the educated and sort of economic elite of that valley but also there was a lot of culture that we experienced around the you know the, uh, the, the more dysfunctional kind of uh, uh, hillbilly aspect of, of where we grew up and then we grew up with access to property but also with very little money um, and within the hippie community that i grew up in we had a lot of the kids really you know not end up doing very well. You know, a lot of the kids who I grew up in ended up in prison off and on. Uh, some of them died, number of drug overdoses, a number of accidents related to drugs. And my life was super idyllic for the first, say, six years. And then when I started school, it became really difficult because I had learning dis uh, disabilities, I had ADHD and dyslexia. And then I had, uh, you know, my dad kind of had had those same learning disabilities. So he sort of pushed me away when he couldn't handle seeing me go through the same things. My older brother moved to California to be with his dad. My cousin moved across the list. So I like lost my whole support network of kids of, of like access to this play. Um, and then I ended up uh, becoming really violent in school. Uh, you know, in, in second grade, I, uh, I knocked a kid down and smacked his head off the pavement hard enough to break his nose open and his lip. I had six weeks of detention. Um, and that was not the only incident like that. That was far the worst, but it wasn't the only one. And I had a mentor who came into my life who gave me access to rough and tumble play and started 
playing with me all the time and he eventually took over my education but that was like the hugest healing thing for me was just getting the chance to 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 physically sort of work through my emotions mm-hmm. and um i read a, an article on this by jordan peterson where he was saying that you know if you look at the literature rough and tumble play has been found to be the um essentially the best intervention for kids who are struggling with aggression yeah most powerful inter, uh, um, intervention that you can give to a kid who's struggling with aggression. And that's essentially what happened with me. It was like after a year of getting to rough house every day, I didn't need to fight with people anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would say it's, it's a little bit more challenging in a school environment to foster that, especially when you have like four adults out monitoring recess with 150 kids to say like, we believe in rough and tumble play, but logistically it's a little bit more challenging to operationalize. And I think that's what's really cool about our school is like, we know what we believe in and then figuring out how to operationalize that and what is the most closest form of the ideal as possible um, is, is something we do pretty well. Yeah. So I want to dive deeper into, into that, like how does that opera operationalize and you know, I have some ideas around that um, through what we've seen with trying to teach rough and tumble play to adults for a long time. But I, I wanted to go back and ask, like, back to the question of, like, essentially the team sport model, right? Like, if we're, if we're looking at all the, the, you know, you have this contrast between, um, right, you named one of the school districts, but it's an affluent, you know, mostly white community where kids have, are, are all involved in team sports. They have all the equipment they need to take on whatever team sport they're interested in. Um, versus a community where a lot of that stuff isn't available, but the kids have a lot more freedom to create their own play. Yeah. Probably uh, are much more allowed to engage in rough on tumble play. Um, and you, you talked a little bit about, you know, this social emotional component and how you're seeing it play out with kindergartners. But I was curious if you could, if, if there's anything that you see um, happening within the one environment you're not seeing happen in the, envi- uh, the other environment. Right. Yeah, I think um, there's there's a lot of different directions I could could go with that. Um, I think one, it's like um, it's also an adult culture thing, yeah. especially in education. Um, just my observation is there's a lot of Type A people in education, and that's what makes them really good at being able to have 32 kids in a classroom and um, to be able to manage that well but that type A culture doesn't lend itself well to this idea of the constraints led approach. It doesn't lend itself well to this idea of risky play because both of those environments were like, we are going to let the kids figure this out and see what happens. And if you're a type A person, that's a little bit scary. So um, I think some of it too is the, the culture and of adults and being able to foster a mindset shift in, um, and what that looks like. And so getting back to your question of like how this plays out in these different areas is, I think some of it is that is like a mindset of the adults and how to foster certain mindset, um, certain cultures within the students. So like in the more affluent, um, you're most likely gonna have more affluent educators as well. But what was really cool was that we at that school were able to be a part of the hiring process and the training process. And so our 
educators at that school were of the mindset of like this fundamental movement skill is important. Now I've had a big shift in my practice since being there. And so it's, it didn't look like it does now with what I'm doing, but I think, yeah, I, it's, it's really interesting. I don't know. Uh, my mind is in a million different places thinking about that question, but um, the biggest one is I think with the adults and how it plays out with the adults who, who in most places have the control of shaping that for students. Well, yeah. I mean, if we think about constraints led as the environment, the task and the, and um, the individual, right? Well, in these affluent communities, uh, the, 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 the parents are having far more power to decide the environment and the task yeah. than, than they traditionally have had, right? So this is one of my personal big passions. I think that team sports are great um, for, for lots of purposes. You know, you can look at them and see all sorts of really wonderful uh, movement quality is being developed. There's a chance for team uh, team building for you know various character traits to be developed. Um, but I think that we we've really made a huge mistake as a physical culture by essentially replacing our physical education and our play with sports with sport. Yeah, um, pendulum definitely swung too far in that direction. It, I think it's a balance, like you're saying. Yeah, uh, you know, there's a place for it, but it's not the end all be all. Um, that a lot of people think it is. You were saying in one of the other podcasts that the average, the average child um, in, I'm guessing the United States, gets less than an hour of play a day. I think that's actually in the world because that comes from a worldwide organization. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what I, I imagine it's, it's, you said 10% are getting zero. Mm-hmm. Uh, imagine here in Seattle, it's, <laughs> it's a lot. If you talk, you know, and, and you made this distinction between real play and, um, and structured play. Yep. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that distinction and, and why that's important and why we need to, uh, why, why as parents and educators and, you know, we might need to think about that and in, in, in how to provide it for children. Yeah. So um, just to define real play, real play is like, is self-initiated and motivated. So meaning like the child is the one who is initiating that. It's creative, it's imaginary, um, it's active, both physically and mentally. And active can probably be in quotation marks um, because some real play is more active than others. And then there's negotiated rules from and between children, not from adults to children. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's how I would define real play I think that comes out of uh, Let the Children Play. It's a new book that just came out, um, blanking on the author's name. Um, but I think that's important to note because I also think of play as a continuum from structured, which wouldn't fall within this category of real play, to unstructured. And so real play is going to be a portion of the far right end of the continuum that's going towards more unstructured while the further to the left side is this more structured play. And that's where I feel the physical education space operates within is this more structured play where we're using the constraints led approach um, to teach skill, but it's through play. And in a lot of ways, I 
I've said this, I think, if you've seen some of my tweets, I've said this on Twitter is that as a physical, physical educator, I feel like a lot of times I'm just programming play. So I'm watching what students do in that more unstructured environment. And I'm saying, okay, I see what skills are being developed through unstructured play. And I'm programming those skills in a little bit more of a structured environment because, you know, our goal is to teach skill um, in a joyful, in a engaging way. So yeah, I feel like a lot of ways I'm just like a play programmer. And I said, oh, I, I saw you guys doing this outside. So we're going to do this to teach this specific skill that's within our, the curriculum that we're developing. Um, yeah. And I, I think that's, that's where I'll stop. Uh, hopefully something in there answered a question. <laughs> um, can't remember what my question was. I got, uh, I got off on my next thing. You asked about real play and real and, play. Yeah, yeah. 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 I think that's, it's, it's good for people to understand that. So, um, I mean, I have a bunch of tangents I could go on here, but I guess what's, what's coming up for me is, uh, I'm interested in this this uh, this distinction between structured and and you know I haven't really heard the term real play. I've heard of the term distinction of unstructured play versus structured play, right? When we set up a kid's soccer game, that's that's very structured. When children are just like you get a group of kids together and you let them go run in the park, um, they might play soccer and they might break from soccer to go play on the merry-go-round or they might turn their soccer into something else. Um, and that's unstructured. And, and my understanding is that unstructured play is what a lot of the most profound benefits have been shown to be found in by the research. Um, but uh, I, I was thinking about this in reference to the, um, to the conversation you were having when I was listening to your podcast, because um, my own kids, you know, I have a seventh, seven-year-old daughter, a five-year-old son, and now a two-year-old daughter. My, my two older uh, children, um, they have a set of games that they kind of have that we've developed together. Right. So like one of the, one of the games that they love right now, their favorite game right now is um, the sock game. So in the sock game, we get on the bed and I put on some loose socks that I don't like very much and they have to try and pin me down and pull my socks off. <laughs> I love it. Um, so this is a game that I actually uh, discovered through jujitsu. Right. So I was thinking about constraint-led approaches to to developing jiu-jitsu skills because a lot of jiu-jitsu is very technical and top-down, and I think it could probably be better done by having a bit more constraint-led um, approaches to developing some of those in-between things between all the skills. So I was thinking, uh, this isn't my game, but I, I saw someone else come up with it, and I was like, ah, oh, this is perfect as a way to introduce all of the leg entanglements and control of the leg in jiu-jitsu. Um, so I had that in my head and then, you know, one day I was just like, okay, let's try this with the kids. And they love this game. It's their favorite game. Um, and there's a few things that are important to me about it. One is uh, the kids don't even have their socks on. So they can't lose, right? Yeah. It's They can only win. And a lot of times when I'm wrestling with the kids, it's like, I'll default to like not actually letting them win enough. And they love the the, the physicality and the being thrown and everything, but they want to feel like they can win. And, um, and it's fun and funny when they win, when I just let them, but if I can constrain the game in such a way that they can actually legitimately win, like that's extraordinarily rewarding to them. Yeah. So that's, that's a game and they'll ask for that game specifically. So it's an adult structured game in a way, but it's like mutually negotiated. Yeah. And, um, and then like, you know, we have a couple more, one of the games that they really, a couple of the games they really like are, uh, 
this is my floor, so they can't come down on the floor off of the couch or the bed, and I'll throw them onto the bed every time they come down onto the floor. Or the other one is, this is my bed, this is my couch, and throw them off. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because um, my son in particular, he, he really likes to play a game that he's already familiar with. And when I try to change the game up, he'll get upset with me. Mm-hmm. Like he's like, you know, we're, you've introduced a set of rules. I really like this set of rules. Like every time that we engage in rough housing, I want to do this. Yeah. Uh, and I, I just thought that was a really interesting thing about how there's, um, it's still child directed, right? Um, because they choose the game that they want to play. Yeah. But it's structured and, and it is, uh, you know, and I've in some sense developed the rules around these things in order to achieve certain things that I want. Like I want them to learn certain physical skills. And also I want them to experience a, a, a good balance of struggle where it's hard, risk, safety, and, um, and success, right? If they, don't, if they don't have something that they can see as success frequently enough, then they're going to get frustrated and lose motivation. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I was just curious to kind of throw that idea of like, how does that fit in this binary of real play and, and structured play? And, and is there maybe some more, um, more sophistication and nuance we can put into that distinction? Also between adults to children play and children to children play. Yeah, no, that's interesting. First thing that stands out to me is, is the question of like, what's the difference between unstructured and real play that you mentioned? And I think in a lot of ways, they're one in the same. If we send kids out to recess, it's unstructured in the sense that like, we're not telling them what to do, but like we've sent them out to recess. And so it's not self-initiated in the sense that they're saying, yeah, I'm ready to go play outside. I want to go do that. Um, and so I think that's maybe the nuance of real play versus unstructured play is, is the self-initiation in a lot of ways. And what that lends to is the creativity that's involved. I think when you see real play happening, it's a lot more creative, a lot more imaginary. Um, we don't have a whole lot out there, but there is so much imagination that's happening at recess because the, and it carries from, you'll see it like they'll do it at morning play and that game or activity that they created will carry over. And so I think that it was an also an interesting one because I'd always heard the term unstructured play and I worked with the link project um, out of TCU thinking about that idea um, a little bit at some of our schools. But this real play and the definition of it, I think, is interesting, especially from the creativity imaginary standpoint, um, which is, again, another engagement standpoint as well. But what you're mentioning about the sock game, I love it. I think it's a great example of the constraints led approach. Um, realized when it comes to teaching a specific skill with a high level of engagement, risky play is integrated in because of rough tumble, rough and tumble play. And I think that speaks really well to some of the things that I'm trying to do within um, our movement class. I have this game I've been working on curriculum. It's called games from long ago and far away. And it's a lot of like Aboriginal games. Uh, And it's, it's interesting when our students play them, versus like more of some of the more traditional, you know, PE games and the level of engagement you see. And they didn't realize it when they were creating this book or when those games were created however many years ago, but like they're all founded in the constraints led approach idea of teaching a specific skill 
when you talk about like evolutionary skills, maybe it was to train kids to learn, a, you know, a hunting skill or, or whatever it may be. Like that's why a lot of these games were created. Mm-hmm. And um, I use, I mean, this book has hundreds and hundreds of games and um, that's why I use it because if there's, there's this level of engagement that you get with these activities that you don't see um, in some other activities. So those were my first kind of thoughts hearing what you're saying. Yeah. So with, um, I kind of want to go back for a second and, and establish some of the grounds of the conversation. Yeah. Social emotional learning is something that, um, that's a term that I'm not as familiar with. It's something that, uh, actually one of my former students who went on to co-found kind of the most successful parkour teaching, um, institution right now in Seattle and he works specifically a ton with kids he work, he teaches the parkour uh, parkour um, programs he runs the parkour programs for most of the public schools private schools around Seattle that have taken on parkour programs he kind of took that as a niche he's gotten really passionate about um, SEL learning and that's become very important in his uh, um, in his approach and that's pretty much as much as I heard about it, honestly, until I ran into trying to research this. And I was like, oh, like, if you need to, Kurt, if you want to talk to Kurt, you got to learn about SEL, right? Uh, Kurt, Kurt Jordan's his name, Kong Academy. So for anyone who's interested in, in SEL approaches and parkour and integrating them to schools, check out Kurt. Um, I, uh, I, but, uh, so I, I started listening to you and, and the idea is that essentially through physical education or through through, well, I suppose the SEL is, is much broader than its application to, to, um, to, um, to physical practices, right? That's something oh, absolutely, yeah. throughout the educational um, uh, structure. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting to me is that there's this, uh, there's this sort of convergent evolution, I would say, with, with what we've been looking at with EMP. So, um, with Evolve Move Play, one of the central ideas is um, it's not what you do within your movement practice that matters. It's what that movement practice does for you. It's how it changes you. Um, and, and in some sense, the most essential changes are those social emotional changes over time. Right? Yeah. Um, the most important things in our lives are contained in our relationship to other people and our ability to negotiate those relationships and negotiate how those relationships actually impact us internally. And we find that through physical activity, we are able to essentially embody and recognize lessons that very powerfully sort of allow us to, uh, to become more sophisticated in, in navigating those spaces. Right? So, Parkour, for instance, and, you know, risky play, parkour is obviously very closely aligned to risky play. Um, One of the things that pretty much anyone who has a lot of experience of it will talk to you about is the relationship with fear, right? How do we, how do we become courageous people? How do we recognize something that is of value to us, but that we're scared to approach? Right. And then how do we go through this, uh, the steps of approaching that? That's essentially what people who do parkour are practicing every day in a way that um, there's probably few other things that, that ask you to, to look at and confront your fear as consistently and as 
much of a center of the practice as it is. And so that's a that's an emotional learning component, right? And in order to excel at parkour, um, your technical base is always limited by that emotional um, skillfulness. And so we've, we've become very interested in that and the idea that, you know, fundamentally the question isn't so much even what's happening to you in your relationship to fear within parkour, but how well are you able to translate the insights generated by that practice into the rest of your life? Because, mm -hmm. you know, even if you train parkour at like a couple hours a day, it's still a really small part of your life. And, uh, and, and if you're, if you're not able to, to extract anything from the practice into the rest of your life, you're, um, you're probably missing out on a lot, right? Go do something that gives you more benefits <laughs> that, that yeah. does do that for you. Yeah. Um, this is something I've been talking a lot about with, with John Verbeke and Mark Walsh, who are a couple of, uh, regulars on the podcast here. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, after that very long preamble to hear, um, what this uh, social emotional learning model means to you kind of where it fits within the way that you're looking at education and specifically how it re interrelates to, um, to physical education. Yeah. Um, before I get into answering that question, I just want to give listeners like a really uh, tangible step if they're interested in this idea of SEL social emotional learning, the collaborative for academic social and emotional learning castle is kind of the leader in social emotional learning resources, frameworks, et cetera. And so they have what's called the SEL wheel, which talks about these five core competencies of social emotional learning. It's self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, relationship skills, and responsible decision-making are their five core competencies. And you spoke to many of those as you gave that preamble. Um, and so, just wanted to give that as a good resource to go check out castle.org, I think is their website. But when I think about this idea of the uh, integration of SEL and physical education, when you go back to Margaret Whitehead's definition of physical literacy and you read her work, it was a lot less about the definition that has come to, to be known now. And it's, it was more of this like existential bigger kind of in the clouds definition of physical literacy of the mind and body being interrelated. Um, and uh, I'm just going to give a couple stories to speak to that. And then I'll get into how I see it playing out in physical education. The first is that came to mind was around our first graders. We were coming in and we, our focus was on, um, we were doing some different tag games to um, develop some spatial awareness and, um, they come in and we start playing these games after our warm up, and I'm like, "What the hell is going on?" Like, kids are running into each other, they're tripping and falling over themselves. It was not the first graders that, like, I knew, and so I asked the teacher, "Like, is anything going on in the class today?" Like, it was just a weird day in there, and she's like, "Man, like their behavior in the class, like their self management, their self regulation was all out of whack today. Like, there was all these arguments and." And I think that really speaks to that interrelation inner of the mind and body. You know, there is these behavior issues in the classroom and I'm seeing those things play out in a lack of spatial awareness in a tag game. Um, and that's really interesting to think, does it go the other direction too? Like, are those things just related or is one developing as a result of the other? Well, you know, the whole chicken and egg 
if we improve spatial awareness, is that improving self-regulation? And I think, you know, going into the research, it, it, it would say that it is. Um, another story um, that comes to mind is recently we, I made this shift from um, cooperative, more cooperative fundamental movement skill activities where they're just, you know, different vaulting activities and to um, develop different movement skills into more competitive where now, you know, you're partnered up and you're winning or you're losing against somebody and to see the shift socially, emotionally um, from cooperative to competitive and how some students were able to handle that and some students weren't, I think also speaks to the interrelatedness of this physical with social emotional learning and that the physical education setting is a just a uh, prime opportunity to teach some of these skills of how do we interact with students something as simple as breaking up into groups and selecting partners is something that I've been talking about with third and fourth graders when it comes to relationship skills. One of those five core competencies within Castle, I'm like, okay, you need a partner or a group of three. This is what we're doing. And then I send, you know, prep them, send them off and just seeing the difficulty of being able to form groups of two or three to get into this activity. It's like, man, this is a great opportunity to teach certain relationship skills. So Essentially what I do is, you know, I have a primary focus within the physical skill side of things. So I know that I'm gonna manipulate the task or environment to teach a specific physical skill. And that physical skill, I have a learning target that is developed, you know, for that physical skill. But then I also have a learning target for this social emotional skill. And so it might be as simple as like, I can give descriptive feedback to my partner to help them get better. Or I can look my partner in the eyes as I'm giving that descriptive feedback. And there's a lot of opportunity within the physical education setting to teach a lot of these skills. And I think it's just ripe for teaching a lot of these skills because of how interrelated the mind and body are um, to each other. So that's kind of the big 3000 foot overview of, of what it looks like and how I'm thinking about it within physical education. Um, are you familiar with the like the embodiment community or the idea of embodiment? Uh, not in particular, no. Uh, check out my, my friend Mark Walsh's work, but um, okay. there's this whole community of people who've come together through somatics like Feldenkrais and uh, Ego Skew, Alexander Method, through dance movement therapy, um, through kind of the the um, the internal martial arts and the kind of um, you know, some of those, uh, I would call them Tao based martial arts, martial arts that are oriented towards self cultivation rather than uh, primarily competitive skill. So, Tai Chi Xuan, Bagua Xuan, Ying Ji, Aikido, stuff like that, um, and yoga. And so then there's this community that, that's developed around it. And the basic idea is that we, we have to kind of get rid of this mind body duality, right? Mm -hmm. You are not, we do not have a body. We are a body. We interact with the world as a body. And I think that we, we, we tend to fall into this idea of, of the mind as the self and the body as this sort of thing that we operate a lot. And I think that it, um, it, it misleads us in really important ways. And one of them is that we think that we can kind of extract uh, lessons purely through kind of things that we juggle in our head. 
This also comes up through what's kind of the, the most, uh, most modern branch of cognitive science. Cognitive, you know, third wave cognitive science is called 4E cognitive science, which stands for cognition, right? Our thinking is embodied, embedded. So it's, it's, it's you, you think through like, you actually think through physical analogies, right? When you say you understand something, it means you're standing under it. Guys, <laughs> I'm recording a podcast. Please go away. Uh, I love it. Um, you know, when you think you have, do you, have, you know, do you have a grip on what I'm saying, right? Like all these things are, 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 are actually how we think by, by essentially modeling out avatars of physical actions. Um, embedded, right? The way that we engage in cognition has to be in relationship to an environment, right? Um, it's enacted, right? It's, it's, we have to actually do things in order to understand things. We have to act in order to get information that allows us to, uh, to perceive. Um, and it's extended. Cognition is not only in this moment, it's, it's, it's across time, right? It exists within that, that time spectrum. That's my understanding of what 4E is. Um, so, so we have, we have this, this idea of, of embodiment and as we're thinking about social emotional skills i think one of the, the powerful things about physical practice is that um you you get the opportunity to experience it at all levels when you do it through physical practice right yep. so you know public speaking is terrifying right that can be that can be a really powerful you know toastmasters can be a great lesson in courage mm-hmm um, and, and it's physical, right? You, you stand there and you talk, those are physical actions. Uh, but there's something about jumping in parkour or doing martial arts or something where your, your whole body, as much of yourself is integrated into the activity as possible. It feels like to me, there's a unique opportunity to generate insight within something that addresses as much of the self as possible. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, curious for your take on that. Yeah, no, I I completely agree. And I think that's where those advocates of team sports would really um, push their agenda is that there are a lot of SEL benefits of the team sports, like you mentioned, being on a team, it's physical in nature. So you're learning a lot of these SEL skills. But again, we're missing some of these other things. But yeah, um, I I, I totally agree. And and it makes me think of, of how I teach movement skill is a lot of the way I approach teaching these SEL skills as well is that sometimes that learning target is introduced to students so that they know what they're working on depending on where we're at in the process of learning it. Sometimes that learning target of that primary focus is just for me to really direct my focus and energy towards the development of that skill because I want it to be more embedded. I want it to be more inquiry based. I want it to, um, be this more natural emergence of that skill rather than this is what we're working on. Let's focus on that. And so I totally agree that there are these opportunities, just like movement skill, there's these opportunities to embed these SEL skills in a variety of different ways through the physical um, education side of things. So let's, um, let's get more into kind of how you, how you're doing what, you know, what I've seen as like really unique to what you're doing, which is, that task constrained sort of play approach to physical you know, movement engineering or physical education. Uh, you, you've taken influence from natural movement, you've taken influence from Katie Bowman, you've taken influence from the parkour community. Um, 
but like my work is almost exclusively with adults, right? We have one uh, kids class we're teaching here in Seattle right now. Um, but since I started involved with play, I've been teaching seminars for adults. So I'm curious how these things are coming into that community, what you're learning from it. What are some examples of the games and the, the ways that you're structuring things that have become uh, um, really powerful for achieving this, you know? What does this look like versus uh, what we've seen before? Yeah, um, man, that's a big question. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> 30 questions at you there. Yeah, so no, that's a big one. one. I'll ask more later. I think, I think um, I, I, and I also like to talk about like what I used to do versus what I do now because hopefully someone resonates with, okay, that's where I'm at and seeing kind of a path towards where I am now. So in my previous organization where I was for three and a half years, I developed a pretty robust curriculum for physical educators. It was about 750 lessons for kindergarten through eighth grade um, with using the long-term athletic development model as kind of the underpinning approach. And it was this very clean linear progression. If you looked at a skill, there might be, you would do a skill, you know, two days in a row and then another skill and another skill. And then you would come back to that first skill and continue the progression. It was like this very clean linear progression. It looked good. It was, you know, it was well packaged um, because of how organized it was and it made sense. And there's a lot of benefits to doing it that way. Um, but when it comes to, I get back to this engagement piece, when it comes to the engagement level um, of students, a lot of times I would see that falling short because while it was really emphasizing the progression of skill, the teaching of skill, it wasn't taking into consideration at all the student. It was already laid out there. Um, and so engagement would often fall short. And so when you think of differentiation is you can differentiate the content or like the what, the process or the how or the end product. And you differentiate based off of the ability level or the readiness of the student, their interests in the learner profile. A lot of times people, one, only take into account the physical readiness and physical abilities but they forget about the cognitive ability levels and the social emotional ability levels of students, like that example of going from cooperative to competitive activities and how that changed. And then what I was missing was differentiation based off of the interests of students. And I think that's the biggest shift that I've made more recently is, is yes, I still have this progression of skill that I wanna teach, but now I'm looking at, okay, where are we at with the interest level of students? So I might teach one skill that's really highly engaged and I might go through that for several lessons in a row because kids are really into it and we're the, we got a lot of momentum. And then as engagement starts to fall off, I might transition to another skill and maybe that's a low engagement skill. So I only do one lesson of it and then I go to a third skill and then I come back to that lower engagement skill next after we've kind of increased engagement. So I, I think back, I have a lot of background in sports performance and you think of like an undulating periodization model is also like this engagement undulation and this wave periodization of engagement. So thinking about engagement as, as one thing over here. Um, other big influencers in terms, you know, gymnastics, parkour, the athletic skills model, which is a book, a lot of Aboriginal games, multicultural games, um, and so, um, when it comes to the constraints led approach, I think what that has opened for me is a lot of creativity. And so I have this kind of periodization model of engagement, of skill, 
um, with logistical constraints of how many days a week I have students and how much time I have them for trying to get the most nutrient dense activities in the curriculum. So that's another thing that I'm thinking of is making sure that there's a lot of whole foods. Um, and, um, yeah, so when I'm approaching these skills, I'm one thinking about what are some other activities or what are some other skills that are going to be developed through this activity. So even though I have my primary focus, wanting it to be as nutrient dense as possible, and then how do I creatively, um, design this because I have 32 students. So I have 32 five-year-olds coming into the gym at once and I have to figure out how do I teach this skill? And so what I used to do was I had this kind of progression through a lesson from more direct instruction to more of an applied variable activity. Well, good luck having 32 kids sit there and listen to you, teach them how to squat. Like that isn't going to work. Yeah. And so I think when I'm designing it, there's a lot more implicit learning that I want to happen play-based. Um, I'll give some other examples because I think examples are a way of really rooting it in what's actually happening. Yeah. Thinking through like, all right, you know, you, I want to do a movement prep that, you know, follows an evidence-based framework. You raise, activate, mobilize, potentiate. Mobility movements, like within a dynamic warm-up, if you look in the sports performance world, are very dry. Kids hate doing them. Yeah. So how do we develop mobility in a play-based environment, whether that's through different animal movements and crawling? One example of one that's actually out of this book, Games from Long Ago and Far Away, was it's called Chicken Fights, where basically they hold on to their ankle, which is essentially a quad stretch, and they're trying to bump somebody out of the box. And so thinking of like whole foods and nutrient-dense movements, one, they're getting a quad stretch and a hip flexor stretch but they're also getting dynamic balance. They're also getting rough and tumble play. It's highly engaging. Um, so that's one example of like a mobility movement through play with all these other nutrients involved in it. And so that's what I'm thinking of is like how much, how, how do I get as much bang for my buck? And that's a lot of why I moved into this new job is I was working in the physical education space with schools who were operating in the ideal. They got kids four days a week for 35 to 50 minutes a day. Like they had this ideal environment and they could go a little bit slower and, and, you know, teach maybe at a slower rate than I am, but I get them twice a week for 35 to 50 minutes. So I need to get as much bang for my buck and I need it to be as engaging as possible because I do have 32 kids and the number one best, classroom, the number one best classroom management tool is engagement. If you have kids engaged, you're not going to have kids acting up. So Long story short, that's a, a little bit of how I'm thinking about it um, from just like a real tangible way that I do it. I usually have two stations with two different activities. So I have the group split in half. One station is much more self-directed um, and it's either a review of something we've previously done. So they already know how to do it um, to review that skill, that activity, or it's foreshadowing of a skill that's coming up. Um, then the other station is our primary focus. That's where I'm in more proximity to and really focusing in my efforts. And that allows me to give a lot more direct feedback to students in that kind of having the class. Um, sometimes there's three stations. Usually the third station is like a whole group. And that's usually done at like the end of a movement prep. I like to do a lot of rough and tumble type games at the end of movement prep. So like 
um, like an Aboriginal stick pull where they have a stick, they're sitting on the ground, they're trying to pull it out of the other person's hands without their butt coming off the ground. Stuff like that I like to do at the end of our movement prep. Kids love it. And that's my kind of integration of rough and tumble play. From a SEL standpoint and self-regulation standpoint, I also see that being hugely beneficial as a preemptor to the, the lesson, knowing that we're going to be in physical close contact with each other in a lot of ways in some of these activities. So that's a good way of having a little bit more of a structure and um, setting expectations around what that looks like. Um, yeah, so it, that's a long story. I have a curriculum that I'm kind of developing. It's not a curriculum in the sense that it scopes everything out, but it's a way of um, people being able to flexibly um, create their own curriculum in a way and um, that I'm working on now. And hopefully we'll be able to share that with people here uh, in the summer. Yeah, lots of interesting stuff in there. Um, definitely a, a lot of commonality in a way to my own history, right? So I started um, with gymnastics and then parkour. And then my first parkour design was all about essentially engineering the optimal set of progressions. And I think this idea of, of the coach's role as being, you can think of it like an engineer or you can think of it like a gardener. I think it's a really great analogy. And I think that um, having some engineering uh, behind it or, or being able to think in that frame is useful, but that fundamentally we're doing something that's much more gardening because we're, we're not working with machines. We're working with um, systems of systems, right? We're working with dynamic organisms. Um, and so understanding that, that idea that you're, that, that they're growing on their own, right? Mm -hmm. And you're just helping facilitate it and direct it um, and helping, you know, prevent it from going in <laughs> catastrophic ways. Yeah. I think is a really powerful way to, uh, to conceive this. And, you know, I went through that, um, you know, that progression as I moved into natural movement. Um, and then also the, the neck, the thing that pops out to me is that the engagement is such a powerful thing. And I think this is the, this is the missing piece um, in physical education. It's the missing piece in our physical culture in general, right? Like we have, you know, I talk about this a lot, but we have a $30 billion industry around fitness in this country. And we have the least fit population of human beings in ever right mm -hmm. um, fundamentally we're doing something really wrong and i think that thinking about it thinking about human beings like machines and trying to build the pieces of these machines um is what's really not allowing us to tap into the engagement right and it's the engagement that drives the long-term success of it so one thing that we've noticed is we work on our warm-ups uh the, the things that we do for a warm-up, we aim to have them warm people up, not just physically, right? So they're moving through big ranges of motion. They're bringing core temperature up, right? They're replicating certain movement patterns they're going to see in their, in their workout. Like that's, that's classically what like an engineering perspective on, on a warm-up is. Um, but we also are asking the question, do they smile? Do they laugh, right? Do they become attuned and develop greater trust and rapport with the people that they are training with? So, and did their brain get challenged, right? So there's a cognitive, emotional, um, physical, and relational component to an effective warm-up from our perspective in a group training session because um, all of those things have an immense impact on the success of the skill acquisition and also the success of the skill acquisition in developing all these things we say that it's for, right? Like people say, take your kids to team sports because it's going to develop character. 
and everybody knows that they're unlikely to to raise the next Tom Brady, right? Mm-hmm. So, so the pitch is something else, like because otherwise it's like just buy the lottery ticket, right? <laughs> Why yeah. does you buy your kid a lottery ticket every day? Is every day, yeah. Become an elite uh, elite player by sending you know spending tons of money on on their team sport career. Um, so it's something else, and but we don't seem to attend to that something else. We don't seem to attend to what is the thing that will actually get them to derive those benefits. Mm-hmm. So that's the the thing that popped up in my mind as you were talking about that is not only is engagement the key to getting five year olds, <laughs> thirty two five year olds to not drive you insane. Um, it's also the key to getting a forty five year old woman who has never been fit in her life to actually be able to make a change that's sustainable in her life. Yeah. So let's sit, stick them on a treadmill and have them do treadmill intervals. Like good luck. Like <laughs> that works for a small percentage of the population, but that's also what we're trying to start doing with kids. And I think it's starting to show its effects um, on kids too. It's I, mean, interesting. I mean, I think it's been there for a long time. Like I had this, Recently, I've been getting really interested in like the history of physical culture and thinking about how the way that we think about the body and and we think about sport and we think about movement reflects broader cultural trends. You know, a lot of the origin of like gymnastics and uh, the, the team sports was during the time in which it was during the Enlightenment and the period in which everything was influenced by the Greeks also is influenced by like pan-Aryan theories and stuff that would go on to be the foundation of, 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 you know, white supremacy. So, um, Jan, who's the father of gymnastics, um, you know, he, he was extremely like national. He was a, a very romantic nationalist about German, about his Germanness in a way that would go on to be very much influential on like the Hitler youth. So there's this huge, you know, that we, we've, we've tended to, neglect the body and what it means to such a degree that there's this like there's this empty part in our history about how that has impacted us um uh, but okay sorry i got all lost on a tangent there Um, it was a good tangent though (laughs) but what i'm what i'm what i'm what i've been thinking is that a lot of physical culture arose around the period in which factories were developing and I think that exercise, so a couple things happened. One is people went from very active lives that were very diverse working on farms to extremely repetitive factory work, which is very hard on your body. And then into sedentary work, which is also really hard on your body, but in different ways. Um, and so it was like, you didn't need, you know, hunter forgers don't exercise, right? Like when you're, when you're a farmer, uh, you know, uh, working on a small farm, you don't exercise because you, you had to, you know, milk the cows and carry the hay and bale that, you know, it's like you're doing physical stuff all day. Um, but all of a sudden when you had a primarily urban population, people had to exercise. Yeah. And what was their model for how to exercise? Their model in some ways was the factory. And I feel like, you know, physical education may have gotten worse in certain ways in the last say 30 years, but it's, it's kind of been, really not that great for a long time, at least in some ways, because think about how many people's predominant memory of physical education is it was drudgerous and boring and torturous. Mm -hmm. We've missed the, we've missed something 
because kids will automatically self-select tons of unstructured physical play that will challenge them when you just give them an unstructured environment. And yet we've tried to replicate that through these physical education systems. And what I think we've done is we've actually negatively conditioned our population from physical activity. We've punished them for engaging physically through the team sport model and the, the physical education model to the point where we've, we've created the emotional um, resonances that are most likely to inhibit them from engaging in physical activity. Yeah. There's two things that you mentioned that really stuck out to me is one is when you think of the team sport model too, is what percent of adults are playing team sports. It's a really, really low percentage. And so while it might benefit kids, then when you're done, like, what do you do? And then that's when they go into this more structured physical activity, because that's what they know from the team sports model is this training that they did for team sports. And then they get into that and it's not as engaging. And then you see things drop off. And then the second thing that resonated with me is I'm, I'm, almost done reading this book about the history of play and playground structures by Joe Frost. I don't know if you've read that. I haven't. It's, it's fascinating because it talks about this progression of, of play and of physical education. And so, or, you know, when the re industrial revolution happened and we saw the urbanization of America, what sprung up as a result of that was the playground movement because kids were in the streets and you saw crime in the streets and you saw, um, like the cars were, you know, the car had started to come out and then there was accidents happening in the streets because kids were playing in the streets. So you saw playgrounds start to pop up and there's these kind of two different, um, these two different movements of playgrounds. One was the sand gardens where essentially they just like dumped big things, piles of sand for kids to play on and play in. Um, and then the other is physical playground structures. And during this time they had play like play. I forget their, uh, exact term they use, but like supervisors. Okay. And so this is when structured play started to happen. These play supervisors were in charge of making sure that these large groups of children, hundreds of children on the playgrounds had something to do. Um, and then from that, I think that's where like physical education starts to come in. And um, there's this kind of um, blending of the two, but it's really interesting to think also about this idea of the factories and how that plays into it. But if you look at also, I'm, I'm getting to a point, I promise, um, where kindergartens sprung up from. So kindergartens originally were not part of primary education. Mm -hmm. They were separate. And so you had a lot of this real imaginary play in kindergarten. They don't even, they didn't even used to use the term recess because you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to differentiate between what was happening inside and what was happening outside. It was just kind of a continuation of it. Um, and there's, there's something that happens and I don't understand why I was talking about this with Chris, who's one of the co-hosts of the other literacies, like why, when first grade hits, does that change? And it changes because of the educational system and how it's been developed in a lot of ways during that time of ind the industrialization of America. Um, and there is like a clear divide between what kindergarten was and what first grade was to prepare students. And in a lot of ways that hasn't changed. Like we've have a very similar system of education of then. Um, 
and so, yeah, it's just really interesting to think about how history has influenced how we develop play. How do we develop these physical skills in, in children? Um, and in a lot of ways, why we're doing it wrong and we still haven't learned from it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, history, it, 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 it's a constraint, right? There's, you know, you're probably familiar with the idea of path dependency in a dynamical system, right? You, mm-hmm. once, once you're down a specific path, it sets what you can see and where you can go. And so there's all these paths that if we don't take a look at the history of how we've gotten in there, it makes it harder for us to break out or to notice what um, potentially isn't really serving us. Mm-hmm. What do we want out of our physical education system? Um, you know, what do we want out of our education system? That's, that's, that's like physical education has become this sort of uh, ghetto almost, right? It's like the thing that we're just going to take away from and not pay attention to. Yeah. In the education system. But I mean, I think it's uh, that if we're looking at the latest in cognitive science, we're looking at the latest understanding of, of human nature, it should be the opposite. We need to be integrating physical education more deeply into the entire education system. And we need to be applying these constraint led approaches and this play based learning and pedagogy um, more broadly, right? We need to understand how. Um, how, how human beings learn. We need to understand how they do motor learning, but how they do motor learning tells us a lot about how they learn. Um, are you familiar with Peter Gray's work, like uh, Free to Learn? Oh, yeah. I think, is he one of the authors of that book, um, he, Let the Children Play? He might be. Um, yeah. I've, I've read his book called Free to Learn, which is about unschooling. Um, yep. And, 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 I am familiar with him, though. Yeah. So I think that that, you know, those, those insights need to be generalized across these fields. We need to start seeing that, that holistic aspect of, you know, a human is a body and they're not just a mind. And in order to educate them, we have to understand play. Yeah. Understand engagement. We have to understand motivation. We have to understand mm-hmm. how constraints and environments guide behavior. That shows yeah. up everywhere. Yeah. He is not one of the authors now that I remember. Posse Salberg is the P in that authorship, but I am familiar with his work. Yeah. Salberg. Okay, I'll check that out. Yeah, that idea of unschooling is really an interesting one. Um, Another organization, the Human Restoration Project, is looking to really flip the script on what education is and can be. Um, And I think they're doing some really cool things as well. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I, I think there's a lot of stuff to be learned from these things. I also think that there may be that we don't want to necessarily throw out the babies with the bathwater either. No. Yeah. When it comes to structured learning. So I'm always trying to think about like, what is it that we've gained from this? Right. We can see a lot of times when you're in a system, you can see its limitations, but you can't see what it affords you. Yeah. Or when you start, once you go down the path of critiquing the system, you end up seeing only what, What's wrong? and not where it aff- what it affords you yeah. um, and so I think that as we as we begin to think about these things we need to think about what is this affording and how easily could it be replaced by some mm-hmm. alternate system um, so I just uh, I think it's a it's a useful frame as we're looking back on it. it's like the factory model fails in lots of ways but are there some ways in which it um, it does work right mm-hmm. um, and maybe it's hard to replace yeah I think playgrounds are another example of that. Like playgrounds served a really important purpose, 
where they've come as they become more and more regulated doesn't do us well. They're, you know, they're lower to the ground, they're plastic, they're not natural, but there's still a really prime opportunity for using them for our benefit if we, you know, know <laughs> what where. Training parkour about 15 years ago um, was right around the time that like all the, like over the next five to 10 years, every old school playground or like the Lincoln log playgrounds, the metal and wood construction and the big slides and everything, they were all sort of slowly taken, destroyed and replaced with these horrible, horrible modern contraptions that seem designed to try to limit children's play in as many ways as possible. That's as yeah. far as I can tell what they're designed for. Because, you know, that's all about liability. Liability, yeah. Um, but it was just, it was, you know, I had such a, a personal stake in that transition because, like, those those original playgrounds were wonderful for parkour practice as well. Yeah. The stuff that they were replaced by was terrible. Um, and it's crazy. Like, you go to these playgrounds and they say, you know, uh, you know, approved for children two to six years old. It's like kids stop playing at six yeah <laughs> no first grade sorry your play career is over over i'm gonna yeah. get serious about your education if you're gonna get into harvard yeah and that's where you start to see like movement deficiencies pop up like kids aren't able to run as well because they're sitting more in chairs and um wearing those big fat big, shoes squishy shoes they're not barefoot yeah shoes are optional in my movement class i've like kid, most kids take them off because awesome yeah it's so much better yeah well um i asked for 90 minutes of your time we've just about reached that we um, could probably keep going i think for uh, for another couple hours <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure we'll, we'll have to have more conversations um i think this is you know i'm really excited about you the fact that you exist and these other people exist because um, i think that the insights from the movement community and from play research and from uh, natural movement, they need to be integrated in. You know, it's like, I don't know, I wonder how many um, physical educators out there are familiar with Katie Bowman, or familiar with myself, familiar with, um, with, with parkour really, you know, on a deep level. Um, but I think that that's where a lot of the solutions are to be found for some of the problems that we're having because um, the situation with physical education in this country looks really bad to me. Yeah. And so I'm excited that you're, you're, you're out there harvesting that and taking it to kids and then also popularizing it and putting it out there for, for other people to, to see. So if people are interested in your work, they want to know more about you or want to support what you're doing or want to know how they can get this type of stuff happening in their own schools with their own communities, um, what are the next steps? Yeah, feel free to reach out to me. I'm pretty active on Twitter. My handle's at Coach Verdin, V-E-R-D-I-N. Um, started this this concept of the movement engineering project launched the website like two days ago actually and it was really just a housing place for some of these things that I'm going to start putting out over the next couple couple years and so movementengineeringproject.com is that website there's not anything of value on there right now but it's um, there will be there's a lot of things in the works and yeah super open always to meet via zoom and and talk shop and help people out how they want to implement some of these things in physical education. Um, feel free to reach out to me. I, Twitter's the easiest, um, but also email Peter at future is my, my school email. Cool. 
Well, thank you very much for being on. We'll look forward to chatting again. No, I appreciate, appreciate your, uh, your time as well. That's fun. Thanks for listening to the Evolve Move Play podcast. If you really like the content we're putting out, make sure to leave us a five-star rating and a review. It helps tremendously in getting the word out about what we're doing. And of course, you really want to support us. You can support us on Patreon. This is a listener-funded podcast. And through your funding, it allows us to have the best equipment and to attract the best guests and build our audience. So we really appreciate it if you do those things. And we look forward to talking to you next time.